What if in all of the pages of your Bible, there is this one book that is most essential for you to understand? Written by a man that Peter himself said was hard to understand. See, this is all with purpose because God chose Paul, this man who speaks from the spirit like few others as a filter. Only those with a burning hunger who knocks persistently for truth will understand. Like when Jesus spoke in parables, the people were confused but his disciples understood because his sheep hears and understands his voice. What if I told you that the book of Galatians is probably one of the most misunderstood books in our Bible because it was written by one of the most misunderstood authors, the Apostle Paul. And it's not according to Christina's opinion or even my opinion. Peter himself wrote that Paul's writings Mm -hmm. are hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And especially those who aren't knowledgeable in the law or also known as the Torah or what we call our Old Testament today. If you don't understand what those writings are saying, and you're not knowledgeable in them, you will struggle to understand Paul because, well, Paul was a scholar of the Bible. He knew, well, when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about the Old Testament because that was the only word, the only part of the Bible that was around at the time of Paul writing his letters. And so he was a Torah expert. And he really knew what he was talking about. And he also faced very interesting dynamics around him in different people groups, different issues. A lot of things that we often don't know about and we don't understand when we are reading what Paul is writing. And because of that void, that lack of information, that lack of knowledge, we oftentimes totally misunderstand what Paul is saying. I want to submit to you that that is why Galatians especially is the most misunderstood book in all of the Bible. We will be discussing a few common perceptions about what Paul taught in Galatians. For example, that Paul was against the keeping of God's law, period, and that we are free from the law and dead to the law. Or that Jesus redeemed us from the law. Or that if you keep the law, Jesus is of no value to you. Or that if you keep some of it, you have to keep all of it. Otherwise, you stand condemned. Or that keeping the law is slavery. Or even that Galatians teaches that the law was always meant to be temporary. 
So these statements are all statements that you may have commonly heard talked about when talking about this book of Galatians and that this is what Paul is saying. And so some of these things can kind of technically be in the book of Galatians, but as they are here, they're out of their context. And that means they're void of their true meaning. It means that they're easily cherry picked and thrown out there. And now we build a whole doctrine around one half of verse that isn't even finished yet. And now we believe something that Paul is saying, which he is not saying because it's out of context and even out of its cultural context, which we also need to understand. And so, guys, welcome to the Galatian series. In this series, we're going to be talking about this book in depth. We're going to be going verse by verse, talking about what Paul really meant chapter by chapter. And we hope that this will open up your mind to think about Paul's book of Galatians with new eyes through a first century perspective, because we're also going to be talking about what was actually going on in the first century. Yes. And if we don't understand the history and the culture, what was happening when Paul was writing this letter, these letters that he wrote, what happened in the recent history, we can easily misconstrue and misunderstand his intent. And as believers, as believers in Yeshua, as the body of Messiah, it is so important that we understand these books because they are written for us and for our good so that we can grow stronger in our faith and walk more in the spirit as Paul talks about. But if we cannot do so, if we totally misunderstand what he is saying. And the beautiful thing about the book of Galatians is that when you really start digging deep into the into this book, verse by verse, you will find incredible treasures and revelations that Paul is speaking of that is that are often overlooked um, in contemporary teachings about the book. Imagine you're watching a movie and you have an actor that comes on to the stage, but you know nothing about this actor. The actor has a few lines that they say, and they're in this setting, this environment of which you have no idea where they are, and you don't yet know the plot. You don't know why he's there. You don't know what he's saying in context of why he's there. You're kind of clueless. So just from that, you can start making up your own ideas on why he's there and what he's saying, and you can create your own plot. But what if that's not the plot of the movie at all? What if you simply need to understand who the actor is, the place he is, why he is there, and all of these extra details that are so important to understanding the plot of this film. It's the same way for understanding the book of Galatians. So oftentimes we delve into this book with excitement and we read it at face value while totally forgetting the context, scriptural context, of all the other books that Paul has written, as well as the historical context the cultural context and all of these things that play such an important role in why this book was written, where it was written to the people, where did they live? So what issues is he addressing in this book and why did Paul write this book? So we're going to look into the first, who is Paul? Well, first off, to answer that question, we can see through scripture that Paul himself describes himself to be a few things. And in the book of Acts, especially Acts chapter 23, verse six, 
Paul talks about this and he says that he is a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. In Acts 22, verse 3, he also says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So as we briefly mentioned earlier, Paul is saying that he is a Torah expert. He was studying under Gamaliel, who was basically the most elite scholar of his day. Paul knew all there is to know that he could possibly know about the Torah and of itself um, and, and its technicalities as it was there. So he is going to be speaking to us in his letters, assuming that we know a lot, because imagine this. Imagine you enter a medical school into the third year, but you've never been to the first or the second year. But you walk into the third year of med school and you enter a class and there's a professor speaking about organs or how to do a surgery, a heart transplant, something crazy like that. You're not going to be able to pick up on what he is really getting at because you missed out on the context of all the terms he's using and how, why he's saying what he's saying and why he's doing what he's doing because you missed out on the first two years. And that's often what has happened because by nature, Paul is going to be speaking in with all this background knowledge of the Torah already because he is speaking. And here's the big thing, thing brothers and sisters, we need to remember he is speaking to an audience who are going to synagogue every Sabbath. He is speaking to people, churches who were going and they were going to study the Torah because that was their Bibles back then. That was all they had. So they had to go to the synagogue where it was being read. The Torah scrolls were there because no one had their own personal Bible apps. Like there was none of that. If you wanted to hear the word, you have to go to a synagogue. You have to listen to what the rabbi is speaking because he is speaking, reading it for them. And that's how they learn the word. And so that is the context of the early church, the first century. They had their home groups. They had their meetings. They had their fellowships, but they also on Sabbath went to hear the Torah scrolls because no one could afford their own. It was very expensive to have one. Right. So the first believers in the first century would be going to the synagogues every single Shabbat, as we even see mentioned in Acts 15. They would go there to hear the Torah, to hear the word of God being read and being preached. And so they would have that context and that foundation that anything else that was written to them in a letter from Peter or Paul would then just flow and make so much sense because they've already heard it preached right from the Torah. And so they understand what is being said. Paul even says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the Torah is holy, righteous, just, and good. And in Romans 3.31, he also writes that do we nullify the Torah, the law of God, by this faith? No, surely not. Rather, we uphold the law of God. So in this vein, as we start to understand who Paul was, that he evidently wasn't against the law of God unless he just spoke out of two sides of his mouth, which we know he did not. He upheld the Torah, that he said the Torah is good, it's righteous. And also, as we see in the book of Acts, Acts 20, 
We read that Paul kept the Passover and also he kept Pentecost, Shavuot. So this gives us an idea of who Paul was. Okay, so enough with the introduction. Let's jump right in. In Galatians 1 verse 1, we start reading the following. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Okay, well, that's the first hint right now. He's saying he's writing this letter to the Galatians in Galatia. Now, the thing we need to understand is, is we're reading their mail. So that means that while Paul is writing this for us to read, he is not writing what he's going to write in this book to us directly. There is a slight difference, right? Because if it is not written to me, I need to understand, okay, there's someone else that was written to. So what, how would those people be perceiving what Paul is writing to them based on their circumstances around them? Because if I just assume I'm a Galatian, but I know nothing about the Galatians or what was going on in their world, I, it's going to be sometimes hard to understand some things Paul is saying. So who were the Galatians? Well, the Galatians, it's actually quite interesting. They were Celtic mercenaries, the slave traders. A lot of them were involved in this kind of trade. And so when Paul is writing to these people, of course, the, the country of Galatia, the people of Galatia, they came from a pagan background. And with a lot of pagan religions, the way to attain salvation or to attain entering into paradise is through your works. It is through how good of a person you can be. I take Islam, for example. If you are a good Muslim, a very good Muslim, and you, you are able to do all the five pillars of Islam, going to Mecca and doing all these different things, then you will attain, hopefully, paradise. But the way you can make sure you get into paradise is by even laying down your life in jihad. Um, in the name of Allah, and then you will definitely enter into paradise. But that is, of course, a works salvation sort of mindset. And that's what we see in all these different various types of religions around the world. And it was no different here in the country and at the place of Galatia. People had that very same idea and that mindset when they approached salvation or faith. Right. And in fact, the gospel of Yeshua, you know, following Jesus and the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is the only God in the entire world that brought forth this revolutionary idea that we are not saved by what we do, but that we are not able to do good enough things to save ourselves. You know, right? So and but so every other God in the world and every other religion pay in paganism and whichever there, like Christina said, will teach that you need to do, 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 do. So Galatia is no different. The people out of there coming out of there coming to Christ have this baggage of what do I need to do? And so they're very susceptible to other ideas similar to that from around them that could be telling them you need to do this or that or this or that before you can get salvation, before you can get um, true relationship with God, etc. And so these were some of the things that Paul is really addressing as we go along with Galatia. Right. Right. And so when we read on in Galatians 1 verse 6 onwards, 
he talks about a different gospel being preached. And he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, what's so important as we enter into this book of Galatians is the point that Paul is making in the very beginning, that he was sent not from men, but from God, and that he is carrying forth this gospel that's not from men, but from God, the gospel of Yeshua. And he gives like a little couple sentence summary of what that gospel is, how Yeshua freed us from the slavery of sin and things of that nature. So that really sets the foundation of what he's going to be talking about in this book, because there is, like we just read, another gospel being preached by certain men, by certain brothers, that is not from God, that is from men. And he's going to get into that in just a moment. Right. And that different gospel, right? He gives us two hints in this little verse, we PP verses we just read, and that it is, it causes something to happen to them. It causes them to deserve Messiah. Okay. So this different gospel is not just a little bit it's it actually causes you to not need think at least you don't need Jesus anymore. And also, and it is a gospel. He says that those who preach it are seeking to please men and not God. That's why Paul is saying, I am not, I don't care about what men think and say, I am a servant of Christ. I only care about God. So in other words, it was a very mainstream kind of teaching because men we, the guys who were preaching this were pleasing men. That means that men, in other words, the, the bigger crowd and the bigger ideas going around around him were that, that were being satisfied by this different gospel. So now we're going to start. We need to understand what what is that different gospel exactly? And as we read along, we'll, we're going to start realizing we read on and we read that for I would have, you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So in Galatians 1 verse 14, when Paul emphasizes that he was zealous for the traditions of the fathers. Is Paul talking about the Torah here? He's talking about the traditions 
of the fathers, which are the man-made additions, traditions that were created kind of as a fence around the Torah, which include the oral law, the sayings of the rabbis, things of that nature. And he was making a point that he became more zealous about this, these traditions, than the word of God, than the Torah. And this is actually the same thing that the Pharisees were doing in Mark 7 when Yeshua rebuked them, when he said, very well, you nullify the commandments of God by esteeming your own man-made traditions. And that's what Paul is getting at here. That he wasn't, oh no, when he was a persecutor of the church and when he esteemed the Torah. No, he was saying when he was esteeming the man-made traditions, when he was seeking the approval of men, when it was all about honoring men. But now he's going to start talking about how it was detrimental, how it was really bad, actually. Right. And he's also, at, on top of all this, you can see he's trying to start establishing why what he is preaching is true and different from what his fathers were preaching. And he starts off by talking about how he was called by Jesus himself. And he talks about how even after he was he had that encounter with Jesus right on the road to Damascus, he did not immediately go to consult with you know, the arrest of the apostles or anything like that. It actually says, he actually says that after three years only, he went up to Jerusalem to visit them. And that's where we pick up again. He says that after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Kephas and remained with him 15 days. And in verse 19, he says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and when I was still unknown in person to the church of Judea that are in Christ, they only were hearing it, and they said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith, once tried to destroy us, and they glorified God because of me. Now, if you ask any good lawyer, they would tell you that if you had a case, and you have someone who have had previously had total motives to be against someone, but suddenly they had a radical shift and they turned around to actually stand up for that person. That's a great witness to have. And that's exactly what Paul is because Paul was this violent persecutor of the church. He killed uh, followers of Jesus and then suddenly he encounters Jesus. And now suddenly he is this biggest, he's like really, really zealous for Jesus, right? And so Paul is saying all this because he's saying, guys, you need to listen to what I'm going to say because I received this not from men. I am not going to teach you some mainstream thing that is contrary to the gospel. I'm going to bring you something radical. And that's why he is saying the things he is um, so that he builds credibility. All right. So that was the introduction that chapter one brought us. Now, let's move into chapter two and we will see what he's really getting at. This is when things get fun. <laughs> Right. Galatians 2 verse 1. Then after 14 years, I again went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along too. But not even Titus, who was with me, though a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So Paul is saying here that this was really just about the second time most probably that he was meeting with any of the disciples. First, he met with Peter after three years. Now, after 14 years, he's meeting with the rest of them. And he's talking about how he is showing them what he has been saying to everyone, what he has been proclaiming as the gospel. And then he talks about how Titus, who was with him, he was, Titus was a Greek, 
He was not a Jew. And the people there, right, with at this meeting, the apostles he was meeting with, did not compel Titus to be circumcised. In other words, they did not um, put pressure force on him and tell him, Titus, why aren't you circumcised? You must get circumcised. But compelled by what? Why would why would he be compelled? It's because we read when we read the next verse, he says it's but as for the false brothers sneakingly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our freedom, which we have a Messiah Yeshua in order to enslave us to these. We did not yield in subjection, not even for an hour, so that the truth of the good news remains with you. So he's saying that there were other people who were trying to come and spy out their freedom. In other words, they were trying to come and and bring in things, instruction that would would enslave them. And this is in contrast to what the apostles were doing, because the apostles were not forcing this thing that was circumcision in order to enslave. But now we need to talk about this because when we talk about circumcision here in the first century, we need to ask whether that idea of circumcision is what they had and these false brothers had was the same as what the Bible teaches regarding circumcision. And this is key because if you think that when we talk about circumcision and Paul talks about circumcision in general. And you think that he's just talking about exactly what the Bible teaches regarding circumcision. You're going to misunderstand Paul because there were some radical ideas going around regarding circumcision that we're going to soon touch on that we need to get first. And we'll discover more about circumcision. Now we read in verse six on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter been trusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So this is the first hint we're getting at here. Paul is using circumcision in a very interesting way. He is saying that the Jews are called the circumcision and the Gentiles are called the uncircumcised or uncircumcision. So and he's saying that Peter were sent to the circumcised, the Jews and he, Paul, was sent to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. But this idea of attributing um, uncircumcision to Gentiles as a blank blanket statement is not really necessarily a biblical idea. And in that here he is often using it as talking to a nation. And he's attributing that the uncircumcised is a certain nation, a certain nationality, a certain group. And circumcision is a different group. And that is Jews versus Gentiles. So Paul emphasis on drawing this distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, like PD just mentioned, is really getting back to a viewpoint that was prevalent at this time. And he's just using those those terms because it was a common terminology used mm. in this period. The reason that this terminology was used actually goes back quite a while. If you go back in the history of Israel, you go back to the Babylonian exile. The two most important things that identified you as a follower of the God of Israel, as a Jew, 
as part of Israel was that you were circumcised, you circumcised your sons on the eighth day, and you kept Shabbat, you kept the Sabbath. Because of course they couldn't go to the temple, they didn't have all these other things to give them that, that the obedience to Torah, the, the identity that they had as Israel. So those are the two things that were the most important to hold on to. You were circumcised and you kept Shabbat. Fast forward now to Antiochus Epiphanes. We know the story of Hanukkah, how Antiochus Epiphanes, a Seleucid king, took over Israel and started forcing the, the people of Israel, the Jews there, to, to adopt Hellenistic customs, Greek customs, um, and also not just to adopt these customs, but he would threaten to kill those who would maintain the, the Jewish customs, things like circumcising your son on the eighth day or keeping the festivals, keeping Shabbat, studying Torah. So he would literally go out, if you circumcised your son on the eighth day or your son was circumcised on the eighth day, your son would be killed. And there's even uh, in Josephus, he quotes in the book of Maccabees, how the son would be hung from the mother's neck and they'd both be killed simply because that mother obeyed the command of the Torah to circumcise her son. Likewise, if you were found resting on Shabbat, you could be murdered simply because you obeyed the Torah to, to rest on Shabbat, the Shabbat that God had given. And likewise, if you were found studying Torah, again, you could be tortured, you could be killed. And so we know the story that sometimes the men would get together and secretly study Torah while making play that they were playing a game or doing something else to hide the fact that they were studying Torah because this was a time of persecution. And so, as we know the story of Hanukkah, God led Judah Maccabee and his father Mattathias to, to gain victory over the Greek armies and they were able to reclaim Israel. And so after they reclaimed that you know, part of Israel and rededicated the temple, the two most important things, or some of the most important things that came out of that was because they were persecuted for circumcision, they were persecuted for keeping Shabbat, they were persecuted for studying Torah. Now those things became the most important things. Mm -hmm. And they became elevated, you can say even a bit out of proportion. It didn't just become following Torah and you do it because you love God. It became a nationalistic thing. It became your identity as a Jew, identity as being a part of the Jewish community. And what they would do under the Hasmonean leader, John Hyrcanus, which I believe reigned from around the time, um, during the time of 130 BCE, they would actually take over lands and enforce the people to become circumcised. Otherwise you might be killed. It became not simply, we love God, let's love God together and do what he said to do in his word, but no, we're going to enforce this idea that you have to look as we look. It almost became like the Hellenization of the Greeks all over again, but enforcing God's law in the wrong way and twisting what it was meant to do in a way that was not true to the Torah. Right. It's kind of like they were persecuted and killed for many years for doing these things. And then when they broke free from the persecution, they were now persecuting and killing even people who weren't who were totally not wanting to do any of it and it was kind of turned on its head. And so, you know, the whole mindset behind that was that they were fearful of going back to what happened before becoming a lot, very much like the Greeks, because a lot of Jews in the midst of that persecution very much lost their identity because they were so becoming so part of this Greek 
uh, world right. because all these ident identities or things they were that made them who they were were stripped from them. Right, and that's why the rabbis even created, as we see coming out of the Maccabean period, and Hasmonean leaders that came from that. We see all these different sects and factions and groups that that grew up from this. We had the five different groups of Pharisees. There wasn't just the Pharisees. There was five different types of Pharisees. There was the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Hasmoneans, all these different groups that we can learn about. But what they did is that they formulated fences around the Torah to make sure that you would never accidentally lose your identity. You would never accidentally break Torah. That it wasn't enough just to keep Shabbat but now there was extra rules so that you would make sure you never accidentally broke Shabbat. But in doing so, they made keeping the Torah a burden because of their added traditions, their added laws that they created to protect the Torah because they had seen how it had been stripped away from them, their, their ability to obey the Word of God. So they wanted to protect it. But in so doing, they did more harm than good. Right. And circumcision, more specifically, was probably the most wronged commandment in all of God's word, because the way it was twisted and reconstructed mm -hmm. to become something it was never intended by God to be was actually incredibly damaging to the message of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And it was totally contrary to it. And that is basically going to be the different gospel that Paul is going is addressing in this whole book of Galatians. And, and it comes down to all this baggage that the Jewish people at the and by the time we hit the first century had and they were enforcing it in wrong ways and it was detrimental to relationship with God instead of building it up because it became more focused on culture and nationalism and becoming an in an identity of being a Jew than actually just your faith in God and your relationship with God and obedience. It had nothing to do with, very little to do with God anymore. To bring more understanding to the history of how the concept of circumcision, the command of circumcision, got distorted in the understanding of the Jewish people in this time period, more so by the, the authorities, I guess you can say, that they're the Jewish authorities, the rabbinical authorities, we can take a look at the Jewish Encyclopedia. During the Babylonian exile, the Sabbath and circumcision became the characteristic symbols of Judaism. Thenceforth, circumcision became the mark of Jewish loyalty. The Book of Jubilees, which was actually written in the time of Hasmonean leader John Hyrcanus, has the following quote. Whosoever is uncircumcised belongs to the sons of Belial, to the children of doom and eternal perdition. For all the angels of the presence and of the glorification have been so from the day of their creation. And God's anger will be kindled against the children of the covenant if they make the members of their body appear like those of the Gentiles, and they will be expelled and exterminated from the earth. This is because during the time of the Maccabees, during the time of the reign of King Antiochus Epiphanes, there were certain Jews who tried to hide the sign of their circumcision and to make it appear as uncircumcision. Um, if you look at the history, it's quite interesting, but also it's quite sad. So this book of Jubilees is almost written to combat that idea that had come across, but they went too far. According to the Talmud, 
It was Shem who circumcised Abraham and Ishmael on the Day of Atonement, and the blood of the covenant of circumcision then shed is ever before God on that day to serve as an atoning power. According to the same Midrash, Pharaoh prevented the Hebrew slaves from performing the rite, but when the Passover time came and brought them deliverance, they underwent circumcision and mingled the blood of the Paschal Passover lamb with that of the Abrahamic circumcision covenant. Wherefore, according to the Talmud, God repeats the words, in thy blood live. According to the rabbis, it is Abraham who sits at the gates of Gehenna to save the circumcised. Circumcision is of such importance that heaven and earth are held only by the fulfillment of that covenant. So as we just read, circumcision after the time of the Maccabees had become a nationalistic symbol, your symbol of your Jewish identity. And it became less about honoring God than just becoming a part of the Jewish community at large. And even the sign of the circumcision, the blood that was spilled in the act of circumcision, was their saving grace in a way. That was what saved them. That was the blood that was before God. That was their atonement, as we have written in the Jewish Encyclopedia, quoting the Talmud. And even as they quoted, how you were saved from Gehenna if you were circumcised. And so we have this idea that you are saved by circumcision. It is the blood of circumcision Mm. that saves you and that sets you apart, that brings you into covenant alone. Right. And it's interesting because it even equated the blood of the circumcision with the blood of the Passover lamb from the perspective of the rabbis. Mm -hmm. And as we know, the Passover lamb actually pointed to Yeshua for his about because he is the lamb of God, right? The died for the sins of the world. But they see it that, mm, yeah, okay, the lamb, but the blood of the circumcision is the same. It's the same thing. So literally, that's the big problem we're getting at here is that that the, the blood of this, my own blood literally saves me. My own spilling of my own blood is what saves me. And it's nothing to do with. So it's my works, right? It's not about what God did or what God has done. It's about what I do that saves me from the hand of Gehenna. And Paul addresses this, this popular thought around circumcision in Ephesians chapter 2. When he lays out the entire gospel, if you read the entire chapter, it's beautiful and it's powerful. But he specifically talks about circumcision in chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles in the flesh and called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, that done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time, you were separate from Yeshua, from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, you who once were far off, have been brought near through the blood of Yeshua. Not through the blood of your circumcision that now you're entered into covenant, now you are saved, but through the blood of Yeshua, through the body of Yeshua, through the sacrifice of Yeshua. That's how you're brought near into the covenant, into the commonwealth, because like we mentioned, it's the act of circumcision. That's how you became a part of the Jewish community. That's how you became um, more holy because you were keeping the command. And that's your identity because you were circumcised. And it became that, I, it, what it literally meant being in covenant and mm. being part of the covenant people if you were circumcised. But it became only in the flesh. 
And what does God talk about in the Torah? To be circumcised in the flesh, but in the heart. Mm. And it's so important. And that was mm. what was missing. And they elevated the physical part of circumcision in the flesh right. as being able to save and to bring salvation. And this concept we see being taught in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Right, in Acts 15, we get a very good perspective of how all what we've been talking about now gets transported back into the first century. And this is what Paul is facing head on and what he is talking about. But we see it in Acts 15, too, because we see that these men came in from the sect of the Pharisees. And these men were believers. They, they've come to the understanding that Yeshua is their, is their Messiah. Um, but they still have this baggage that Christina just talked about. And so we read in Acts 15 verse 1 that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they're coming and saying it is needful to be circumcised. It is essential. You, they're, they're compelling them to be circumcised. Just like we read, read earlier in Galatians, how Titus was not compelled by the apostles. Now we have these Pharisaic believers coming and compelling these believers and saying, you must be circumcised. Why must to be saved? And that's key because salvation is the issue here. The issue is not to be obedient or not to be obedient to God. The issue is to be obedient, to be saved. The issue is it's not even just circumcision. You can apply circumcision was the thing yeah. like here that was prevalent. But this can be applied to any of God's commandments, the Sabbath, it can be the, the feast days or anything else. Can you can say if you don't do this, 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 this checklist, you, you, you cannot be saved instead of the idea that when we come to salvation through faith, in other words, we believe first, the kindness of God draws us. We believe we put our faith in him. And now we start this process in our hearts. He starts walking this path, this road with us. And we start this journey of, of a sanctification where God starts showing us this. You need to stop gossiping so much. You need to stop with this heart issue. You need to get rid of your unforgiveness. You need to get rid of the fact that you were mur you're a murderer. You're a, you've done things. You've been a thief. You've been addictions, liars, whatever you are. Okay. We all have those things we dealt with in the beginning or are still dealing with, but it's this, this road of sanctification that God walks with us. Imagine if God came to us and he said, okay, um, if you want to be saved, here's this whole book. And he throws the book on the table and he says, make sure that you follow all those commandments, because if you don't follow all those commandments, you cannot be saved. Okay, that is what these people were teaching in a way. And that would be very much of a burden if God did that to you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, wow, God, I have to do all these things before I can be saved. Like then at the end of the day, you can start trying, but you're going to suffer and struggle just like the, the Israelites did in, in the Exodus over and over and over making mistakes, struggling, especially mm -hmm. even without the Holy Spirit. But never mind that even today with the Holy Spirit, we if we if we were able to just keep God's commandments perfectly and be as perfect as Yeshua was, we wouldn't need him. 
because the reason he came was to die for our sins. He was perfectly obedient to the commandments. That means he was sinless because breaking the law of God is the definition of sin. 1 John 3 verse 4. And so he perfectly kept and was perfectly obedient to the law. He didn't have sin. And now we can be saved from our sins. But now after we are saved, we are now we have this heart and this desire to walk like Jesus did. And how did he walk? In obedience to the law, that very thing that was the opposite of sin. He walked a walk opposite of sin. And so this is the heart of God is not that one or two instructions is the thing that saves us, but that he saves us so that we can now start this journey of learning how to walk in obedience like he did. And how to walk in the fullness of spirit and truth. The fullness of spirit and truth being walking in the obedience to God's word, his entire word, and as well as walking in the gifts, the fruits of the spirit as Yeshua walked and not being held back by fear or by legalistic doctrines that we've inherited from our father, but to walk in the same power and love that Yeshua walked as our example. And then when we read on in Acts 15 from verse 8, we read about how Paul speaks regarding the Gentiles, the people who are now coming into faith, who um, are brand new to it. And we read the following. Acts 15 verse 8. And God, which knows their hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we will be saved even as they. And so we see that even there at the way end, Paul is reiterating and he's saying, this is how we are saved. He's talking about, again, salvation. He's not just talking about, hey, what do we do in our walk? How are we obedient to God? But no, he's talking specifically about saved, not just sanctification, how the journey, but saved. How are we saved? And he, he talks about how the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, just like we the Jews did, you know, the in uh, as we read in Acts 2. And then he talks about how. God put no difference between them and the Gentiles. And he says, God purified their hearts. Now that's key. That's amazing because what he's really meaning there is God circumcised their hearts. God is the one who cut their hearts. Remember in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart when Peter preached after the just as they spoke in tongues, you know, Peter preached and and then they were cut to the heart. They were basically circumcised in the heart. And that is what purified their hearts. And now then he says now because of all of this circumcision of the heart that did take place, don't tempt them or tempt God to put a yoke on the neck of the disciples that not our fathers or we were able to bear. Now that yoke is the whole slavery thing that, that Paul is talking about throughout Galatians and in many of his other letters. This yoke that his fathers nor he was able to bear. Is that yoke the law of God? No, not and not just the law of God, but rather using the law of God wrongly. Yes. The law of God can be a yoke and it was used as a yoke 
because it was used wrongly. If you use the law of God rightly for what God intended it to be, it is not a yoke. In fact, the psalmist describes it as freedom. And so and if the law becomes a yoke, when you use it as your means of gaining salvation instead of trusting on Christ. But if you use the law as a way of pointing out your sins, showing you where you need to better yourself, how you need to change to walk more like your Messiah did because he did obey the law. Now you're using it rightly because it's not for your salvation, but just more walking more like he did. And the yoke that Paul is also talking about here, like Petey said, it's when you misuse the the Torah and you make it a means of salvation, which was never its purpose. You would have to keep the law perfectly, which of course none of us can do. That was why Yeshua came, so he can show us how to walk. And it is through his the grace of God that he gives to us that we are saved. But also the yoke that he is referring to also includes the fences that were put around the Torah, around God's law, by the rabbinical leadership of that day, the oral laws, the traditions mm -hmm. that were added mm -hmm. to the law. And we even know God says in his words, do not add to this word of the covenant, right. do not add to my Torah. But yet they did to protect the Torah. They did it out of good intentions, but it was bad. Very bad. <laughs> it was very bad. Mm -hmm. Paul, I'm sorry, Yeshua, as we read earlier in Mark 7, rebukes certain Pharisees for how they did this, how they elevated the laws of how they would wash their hands seven times with all these different prayers, which are not a bad thing. But when they elevated that to being the same level as God's law, their traditions, these they added things made it a burden to keep the Torah. And the Torah no longer became a thing of joy and freedom. It became a burden because he had to do all these extra things, all these extra traditions, all these extra man-made requirements for being holy, for being saved. Right. And like For even, example, the Sabbath. Yeah, exactly. The Sabbath had more than 1,200 laws that were added to keeping the Sabbath. And it no longer became a day of rest, of being able to just go into the presence of God and be restored and revived. It became a thing of, don't do this, you must do that. Don't, mm -hmm. you picked up a pen, you broke the Sabbath. You picked up your Bible, you broke the Sabbath. You picked up your mat and you walked, you broke the Sabbath. You healed someone. You broke the Sabbath. <laughs> you picked some grain, you broke. It wasn't a day of, wow, I can just come into the Father's presence and rejoice and be restored like we talked about. A day of restoration, a day that was a picture of the year of Jubilee when Yeshua said in Luke 4, I came to proclaim freedom, freedom from bondage, physically, spiritually, to proclaim the day, the year of the Lord. That Sabbath points to that year of Jubilee, that day of restoration, freedom. They became a day of bondage even because of these traditions and laws that were added around this command that were elevated right. even above Torah. And this was part of that yoke that these people right. were bringing in when they were elevating these man-made traditions above God's law. And you know what's the ironic sadness of this whole idea is that these yokes and bondages that came from the Jewish oral traditions passed down from the forefathers, if you were like Paul talked about, is really the prevalent idea that is now even in Christianity. Mm. You know, the whole point of Messiah coming, Jesus coming is to he came to keep the law and he showed us how and he but while saying, uh, talking down on these old traditions that took away from it, like the Sabbath idea, you know, a lot of Christians are on the under the um, they think that Jesus didn't broke the Sabbath and he didn't keep it and he didn't care for it. And, you know, because he picked grain on the Sabbath and he healed someone on the Sabbath. So he broke the Sabbath. Well, he broke the Sabbath according to the Pharisees. 
So do you really want to go on the perspective of a Pharisee, on, on those Pharisees, on what is right and wrong, how to do it and how to not to do it? No, right. We, we have to look at how our God has given it to us. Okay. And so just same with circumcision. Our whole mindset in Christianity on what circumcision is and how our Messiah and Paul looked at it is based. We think about it the same way today, even still, that the Pharisees that they spoke against thought about it. We think about it as like the Sabbath. We think of circumcision. We think of the festivals. We think of um, uh, all these things as being burdens, as being things that are uh, taking away from the gospel and all these things. Well, yes, they were, but we are then still thinking of them in the realm of how the Pharisees thought about them. And they misused and twisted them for salvation to yeah. say that this is for salvation. This is how you get saved. Well, if I have to keep any the Sabbath so perfectly so I can be saved, well, that's not a thing of freedom anymore. And I would say, that is bondage. That is hard. That is what if I take a wrong step? What if instead of no, there's freedom in it? That's why Paul talks about this freedom we have. It's not freedom from the law and that we can now sin. Right. I, we can now be we don't have to be obedient to God. We can do what we want. We can go and sin. We can. Yeah. No, he says we are free from the law and that the law it has no dominion over us like it had before. How did it have dominion before? Well, the ancestors believe that the law is what saves you. So now if you break the law, there is going to be a bondage that comes. There is going to be a curse that comes because that curse is death. Because if you're going to trust in the law to save you and that's all you're trusting in, you're not going to be saved because you're not going to be able to keep it because not because the law is flawed, not because the law is broken, but because you are because you break the law and therefore you can't be saved by that. But you will be saved by Messiah. And that is the good news that Paul wants to emphasize in this book of Galatians, that we cannot be saved. It's not even a good news at all. If we believe we can be saved by our own works, by how well you are circumcised, or you keep all these different laws that are good. But you can't be saved by them. It's not about obedience. It's about works salvation, which is the same right. thing the Galatians were coming out of from their pagan religions and their pagan faith and pagan idols, where it's that works salvation mindset. And that's exactly what Paul says. Don't return to these beggarly elements. And he's mm. saying, don't return to the Torah of God. No, don't return to a works salvation mindset where you have to do all these things to be saved. You are saved right. through Yeshua, Messiah, through His grace by faith but not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man can boast. However, we are his workmanship, created in Yeshua Messiah for good works, created to walk in faith. And the Hebrew word for faith is emuna, which more literally is translated as faithfulness. Faithfulness is an active word. It's a verb. It's vibrant. It's alive. Because when you have faith, it's not a stagnant, idea or concept like the Greek idea. I believe the sky is blue and the grass is green, but that doesn't impact my life at all. I just know it in my brain. <laughs> that is not the faith, the Hebrew faith. The Hebrew faith means I know something and that's going to change my entire life because I'm now going to act on it. I'm now going to do and to walk out that faith in faithfulness, faithfully following the example of the Messiah who came to bring me this salvation. I walk in the example of Yeshua Messiah. Right. So continuing here in Galatians 2, 
verse 11, we're going to read about this famous encounter between Paul and Peter. And this is also an incredibly misunderstood encounter oftentimes. So let's look into it. Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Peter Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So we have Peter sitting and eating with Gentiles. And then we have a group of Pharisees coming in or Jews. And then Peter suddenly gets a fright and he gets up and he leaves because he doesn't want to be seen eating with these Gentiles. Now, the big question is, is why was Paul against him? Why was Paul accusing Peter saying that you are forcing Gentiles to live like Jews? Oftentimes it has been taught that Paul was saying that Peter was teaching Gentiles God's commandments and that Peter shouldn't teach Gentiles to live according to God's commandments. But was this really what he means? You see, in context, we have Peter being simply a hypocrite, right? Peter is like actually following an oral tradition. You know, he is actually following a Jewish oral tradition where they believed that if someone is uncircumcised, if someone is a Gentile and you eat with them, then you are defiled by them. Just as why the Pharisees hated the fact that Jesus often was eating at the table of sinners and that he was with them with the heart of sharing. He said, I did not come for those who are healthy, but for those who are sick. Right. That's why he went sometimes and he was around people who are sick so that he could administer the gospel to them. That means sometimes he was even at the house of a tax collector because he was trying to minister them the gospel, the truth. He was helping them. But the oral traditions of the Jews, not God's word, not the commandment of God, but the oral tradition of, of the, the four, rabbis, of the rabbis, of the forefathers, Certain Jewish leaders. Yeah. yeah, they taught that you you cannot eat with them because that will defile you. That would make you unclean. And so now we have Peter with this mindset still. And he sees these Jews seeing him and he's like, oh, the Jews believe this. I can't be seen. And then he gets up and he, he wants to leave. This is the same group that was following the traditions and oral laws by certain Jewish leadership. And you know what's interesting? If you look into the, the different groups that were around at this time, there were two different primary schools of thought in Pharisaism. And that was a school of the house of Shammai, the Jewish um, rabbinic leader, and the house of Hillel, also an esteemed um, Jewish leader, a rabbi. 
And they each had different schools of thought and the teachings that they would give to their students and to those who adhered to their instructions. The House of Hillel was a lot more conservative, but the House of Shammai was very strict in their teachings, especially in relating to what is being referenced here, eating with Gentiles. Shammai taught that you are not to eat with a Gentile because, like Petey said, that would make you unclean. The Gentiles were seen as dogs. They were seen as unclean, filthy, out of covenant, out of community. You are not to have anything to do with them. Why? Because that goes back again to Antiochus Epiphanes and the Hellenization of Jews. Don't accidentally become polluted by their ideas. Don't become Hellenized. We need to keep our Jewish identity to keep safe, to keep and to guard the Torah, but it became twisted in such a way that they saw Gentiles as unclean. And what did God have to tell Peter in Acts 10? Don't call what I have made clean, unclean. And mm. he gave that example in that vision that he gave Peter in Acts 10. When Peter then realized the meaning of that vision, it was relating to the Gentiles that he was then to go to minister to, the house of Cornelius, who then received the Holy Spirit, and who then Peter did baptize. And that's when he began to eat with Gentiles because he realized that this gospel was given to everyone, not just to those who were born Jewish, to those who were circumcised, but all those who had not yet understood the God of Israel, who came from different pagan backgrounds, who were Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone. Exactly. And Peter's whole thought and mindset, the stronghold in his mind is actually a great opposition to the gospel, because if he's only going to be speaking to Jews and he he's going to be hypocrite with Gentiles or he's going to, you know, then he's not the gospel can never go forth to who Messiah wanted it to go Mm -hmm. forth to. And that is the world. If we're going to be still stuck in the idea that this is only for Jews and we're not allowed to even mingle with Gentiles, especially those who are sick and need the gospel. Right. And that's why when Yeshua came and he said in Luke 4 that he came to to heal the, the brokenhearted, the, 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 those who are in bondage, those who are lame, and to claim the year of the Lord's favor, he then goes on to share how, you know, of all the widows that were in the land of Israel, he went to the one who was not Jewish, or to of all the uh, people who had leprosy, he went to the God healed the one Naaman who was not Jewish by blood, that he came to bring this message of salvation, not just to those who were Jewish by blood, but to the entire right. world. Right. And that's what Paul is also talking about here. So when we refer to the, the Jewish people that were under the, the idea that you had to be circumcised to be saved, and that were holding on to this concept taught by Shammai, that the Gentiles were unclean, um, that's what we're referring to. Sure. So what does Paul mean when he tells Peter that, you know, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So he's not like I mentioned earlier saying, you know, you can't tell a Gentile to keep God's commandments, but rather to live like Jews. What does he mean? The Jews, like we had discussed, believed that you cannot eat with a Gentile. So he's saying that to so for Peter to teach the Gentiles to these Gentiles to live like Jews, what Paul means is, is that Peter needs to tell them they need to get circumcised before I can eat with you. Yeah. You need to get become a Jew into this conversion process, Judaic yeah. conversion process, right. become a Jew so you can be saved 
so that I can now eat with you. And there were seven steps to the conversion process, which we don't see in the Word of God. Yeah. You simply accept Yeshua as your Messiah, and then you walk as He walked. But in Judaism, and we still still see it today, we love our Jewish brothers and sisters. But what Paul is talking about were these things that were additions that are not in the Word of God. The seven step conversion process to become a part of the community, to become a part of the Jewish community, and then right. we can fellowship with you. Exactly. So that is what the, but what Paul is opposing, because that is the only way that Peter would be able to continue eating with these Gentiles, is if he forced them to inherit this idea of you need to get saved and that by your circumcision. And this is the same idea that's been handled throughout this chapter. Okay, and then now when we read on from there, we, we read that Paul is confirming this. He says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that we're not justified. We are not saved. You see, he's talking this whole thing about Peter with these Gentiles eating with them and not eating, withdrawing. It's again about salvation. It's not about just, you know, what do we start doing after we're saved? This again is about salvation and trying to twist this chapter and this encounter into something that tells us that, you know, we don't that it's apart from salvation, that it's just things we need to look into. How do we walk more like Jesus? That's not right. We have to look at this only based on the fact that how Paul looked at it. And that is that Peter was talking, was making basically making a barrier for salvation for these Gentiles. Saying, I can only eat with you until you get saved and clean and by getting circumcised. Mm-hmm. Right? But Paul's saying, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And this is twofold. Because... We are can't be justified by works of the law, both of the oral laws of the uh, the forefathers, if you will, traditions like of the traditions of the fathers, mm-hmm. as well as by the Torah. Over in, in this case with Peter and Paul, Peter was trying to uphold a oral law. He was saying, if you keep this oral law, this is the thing that will save you. This salvation by circumcision idea. But the Torah is the same thing. You can, if you twist the Torah and say the Torah is kept um, for salvation, example, keeping the Sabbath for salvation is just as wrong too. Right. And the people that came into Peter that made him stop what he was doing, stop eating with the Gentiles, were simply those who were like under the, the teachings of Shammai. Oh, no, you're eating with Gentiles? You're unclean. And Peter's like, oh, oh, okay, oops, I'm, mm. I'll just go back to be with y'all and I'll leave the Gentiles. Wait, right. who's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? Right. But after Paul talks about how we are justified by faith and not by our works of the law, he says in verse 17, a big but to this statement. And he says that, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ in a throne of sin? Certainly not. So therefore, he is saying that, yes, we are saved by our faith, but if this whole idea of being saved by faith leads us to believe that we can now break the law and actually sin, then we are saying that Christ is a servant of sin instead of a servant of righteousness. Because Christ was someone who, you know, Jesus walked in righteousness. He was, he was perfect. So we're saying that 
following him is going to lead us to sin. And we're saying, no, then he wasn't a king of righteousness, but a king of sin. But But he wasn't. If we say that Yeshua walked the law perfectly so we don't have to, or that Yeshua Mm. walked the law perfectly and we're going to follow in the example of Yeshua, but that means that, well, you know, we don't have to keep the law, then we've created a different Yeshua. We've created a different Jesus. The Jesus who we're following, if we're trying to follow him and look like him, but we think it's okay to break the law, then we're saying that Jesus we're following also broke the law, and then he would not have been a sinless, spotless sacrifice lamb to take away our sins. And that's why Paul also said in Romans 3, verse 31, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish it. Right. So that we have faith and then on top of that, we establish the law now. It's not that we throw it out after we come to faith because it's not important for us anymore. Paul confirms all this when he goes into verse 18 and he says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so I might live to God. Now, he's saying, if I rebuild what I tore down. Now, what did he tear down? Obviously, he tore down his old man, his old way of living, his sinful lifestyles, right? So he's saying, if I rebuild that, if I rebuild what I tore down, and if I was going to rebuild this idea that I can sin, that I can walk in uh, disobedience to the law, then I am a transgressor is what he said. And then he says, through the law, I died to the law, so I'm my love to God. This is also very misunderstood often. But what he's simply saying is, through the law, I died to the law. Now, what does that mean? It means through the law. That means the law allowed something to happen. The law made provision for something. What is that? The law made provision for Christ to be able to die so that he can, by keeping the law perfect, he kept the law perfectly, die so that he can take our sins upon him, our transgression of the law, so that, Paul then said, I die to the law. So, and what he means by I die to the law is that the law has no more uh, authority over us in that when we break it, we would go to hell before we had Christ. So what that means is, is if you are a, a if you're an alive person, right, and you are dragged before a judge, that judge has the power to send you to prison. But if you are a dead man and then you cannot come before a judge anymore because you're dead already, right? There, there's no judgment to be made. And so that is what he's really saying. He's saying, I died to the law. That doesn't mean I don't need to keep the law. It doesn't mean that the law is not important because you can't keep the law. I mean, you can't walk like Messiah if you don't keep the law, right? So you keep it, but he's saying that if I'm, I'm dead to it. I don't, it, it doesn't have power over me in terms of determining my salvation like it did before I met Christ. Because before Christ, we would all go to hell. We would all not make it because the law would condemn us because the law shows our sins and points our sins out. Right. You're no longer under the curse of the law. You're no longer un- under its punishment. If you're brought before a judge and you were alive, you could be condemned because you broke the law. But if you're a dead man, you've died, mm. you can't be thrown in jail. You're taken back mm. out again in a casket. You're dead. So we're, we died with Yeshua and we were raised again as a new man. Not so we can go back to rebuild what we had torn down, to recommit sins, to, re, 
transgress right. the law, but to walk in that newness of life and to walk as Yeshua walked. And then in verse 20 we read, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Yes, and Paul's phraseology here in Galatians is very similar to how he spoke in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who died to sin, transgression of the law, live any longer in that sin? Or aren't you aware that all of us who are baptized into Yeshua Messiah were baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Yeshua Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. So, in conclusion, obeying God's law is not our means of salvation. It is rather our willing and grateful response to our salvation already received. It is how we say thank you to God for that salvation it is by showing to him that we want to walk like him. We want to walk like Jesus did. We want to walk in holiness. And when we walk in holiness, that is what he delights in. So that brings us to the end of this Galatians teaching of part one here. I hope that this one has blessed you. It's very in depth, we know, but we believe that this foundation will lay the groundwork for the rest of the book as we will dive in going into the part two of this teaching and forward. So please watch part two when it comes out, as well as the rest of the parts as we work through the rest of the book of Galatians. So thank you all for joining us on this journey as we go through the book of Galatians and we'll see you in the next video. Yes. Blessings and shalom. Shalom.